In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Today is the third Sunday of Amshir, and in the reading of today, the people are asking Christ to perform a miracle so that they can believe in him. They say in John 6, verse 30, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe in you? What work will you do? The people were placing the burden on the Lord to prove to them who he was. And they always were asking for signs and miracles so that they would be confirmed to believe that if this man was able to do these things, then certainly he could not be just a regular person and he would be the Messiah and they would believe in him. But they didn't really understand what faith means. What does it mean to have faith? And we actually might ask the same. Sometimes we, we wish that God would do some miraculous event in our lives. And if God does this miraculous thing, then it will confirm our faith. It will make us to believe in him more. It will remove any doubts that we have and so on. The problem with this is it's not so simple as this. Because God is not, if God wanted to, obviously he is all powerful. He could create some kind of miracle in the sky or some miracles that cannot be uh, denied. And that so that everyone in the entire world would believe in him. And there would be no doubting whatsoever that this was truly the Lord and that he existed and that he is doing this and all would believe that he exists. The problem is that this would completely remove our free will. This would remove our decision-making process completely. God can force us to believe in him simply by making himself so clear and obvious. Instead, God wants us to choose him based on what we see in front of us. He puts evidence of himself in the world, evidence in the creation, evidence in everything that we see around us, evidence even in our own selves. And we have to stop and think and ask, based on this evidence, what is it that I believe? Do I believe his words or not? In Deuteronomy verse 30, uh, chapter 30, verse 19, it says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. He, God placed in front of them these two options, and he says, I am giving it to you, the option. It is up to you. I am not forcing you to choose life. I am not forcing Eve not to eat of the tree. You know, like God could have put like a big wall around the tree uh, of, of uh, knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. And he could have said, I do not allow anyone to come and touch this tree, and I prevent you from doing so. But that again removes our free will. It removes our choice. It removes our ability to choose to do wrong. And if we don't have the ability to choose to do wrong, then our decisions to do right have no meaning. They have no value because we didn't have any other option all along. Imagine if there was someone who was somehow obliged and forced and compelled to love you. And there was no other choice that they had. And they must love you and they are forced to love you and even they would be punished if they do not love you. Would you really value their love so much? Would you feel really like their love is genuine and sincere and coming from themselves? Or is it that you force them and you push them to do this or somebody compelled them to do this? So believing in God is not just a belief in his existence. Believing in God is an act of love and an act of faith. It's not just an act of the mind only. It's an act that, that, that draws us toward him, that seeks him as a person to have a relationship with him. We are not just believing in the concept of God, we are believing in the person of God. And if I truly believe in the person of God, then I will seek after him to have a relationship with him, not just to read about him, not just to understand his attributes and characteristics, but to desire him and to desire to live the life that he called me for. So faith is not simply a belief in my mind. Faith is a movement toward God. That is what faith is. Faith is a movement. I'm moving toward God. I'm seeking God. I'm desiring God. I'm willing to change things in my own life for the sake of God. This is the faith 
that God calls us, calls us for, not just the, the belief in, 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 a, in a concept or something that's kind of distant and far away from me. So if you look even in the life of Christ, Christ did do many miracles, right? Even when we speak about the last few weeks when we were talking about the miracle of the feeding of the multitude, Christ did many miracles, even did miracles that the Pharisees could not deny when he healed the eyes of the blind man. Um, he, they could not deny this, but this did not result in them having a relationship with him. This did not result in them accepting him or believing truly that he is the Messiah. So we're going to ask this question is, how can we have a rational faith? How can I have a faith that's informed by evidence and information and to use my mind, my reason? But in the end, it is still a faith. It is not 100% rational. It is not 100% based on proof. There is faith that's involved. Actually, I noticed today when we were reading in the Pauline epistle in Hebrews 4.2, uh, it says what? For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So even though we might hear the truth, and even though we might see the truth, and someone might present to us all this evidence of the truth, unless I have faith in me, then those words are going to land on me kind of like without any power, without any effect, because I'm not willing to hear. I'm not willing to accept. I'm not willing to listen. So we're going to just speak. I mean, this, this topic can be a very, very big topic, but we're just going to speak about a few small points and this idea of how can we have a rational faith, a faith that's informed by evidence, but is not expecting there to be 100% proof of the existence of God. The first point we should understand is you cannot prove the existence of God. And when people come to us and they say, show me the proof, well, we can give them the same words of the Lord Christ, you know, where he, where he says to them, what sign, when they say to him, what sign will you perform, then what will you do, right? That's what they're, they're coming to ask us. And Christ refused to give them the sign. There is no proof. There isn't a proof I can to give you that without a shadow of the doubt is going to prove the existence of God in some kind of scientific way. God is not subject to science in that way. You know, even when you think about the concept of science, and in, in, in when, when we're studying science, the scientist is the one with the mind. The scientist is the one with understanding. The scientist is the one that, that explores the world to discover, right? And does experiments and has observations and makes theories and all that. This is not the way it is with God. Who is the one with the greater mind when we are studying God? It is God, not the scientist. It's not the person who is inquiring of the existence of God. It is God himself who has the greater mind. It is God himself who, who even created the observer. He is creating the person who is seeking him. So when we study God, we think about God, we ask our question, this question of the existence of God, just as here these people are asking Christ to perform a miracle so that they would believe in him. We have to come with that spirit of, of humility. If God really does exist, then he is greater than me. I am seeking the, if the, the existence of a person who is greater than me, not a person that I can put under the microscope, not a person that I can study using the laws of man. I look to what God has revealed. I discover God how? Not through experimentation, but through revelation. God is the one who reveals himself to us as he sees fit. And if he chooses not to reveal himself, then we cannot see him. We cannot find him. We cannot know him. He only shows us of himself what he wants us to know, what he wants us to see. So if I really want to know if God exists or not, then I go to his, his word, what he says, and I say, okay, if this God of the Bible exists, then I must seek him according to how he himself said that he might be found, right? And I will try. 
And if in fact I find that after doing the things that Christ, that God has, has told us to do, then I do not find any evidence of him, then I can say, okay, I do not believe him. I tried what, what he said to do and it didn't work. But I cannot seek him according to the, the laws of man. I cannot seek him according to my own laws, to my own understanding, the way that we would discover anything else in science or chemistry or physics, right? The way that God reveals himself is different. Also, as I said before, he does not force us on himself. When we go to him and show me without a shadow of the doubt that you exist, well, he, he's not going to do this. He wants us to discover him. He wants us to, to see the truth in, in, in the evidence that he has given to us. But this is not going to perhaps be the kind of proof that we are looking for. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, it gives us a beautiful image of the Lord. He says what? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is speaking about Christ. Okay. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. This beautiful image gives us the image of what a relationship with Christ is like and who is doing the seeking. Right? Christ is the one doing the seeking. Christ is the one who is looking for us. It is not we who are trying to prove him. He is the one looking for us. But how is it that he looks for us? You know, if we are inside this house, this metaphorical house here that's being spoken of in this verse, it doesn't say that Christ, in all his power, he barges in, he breaks the door down, and he makes himself known with all just undeniable proof, in which case we, we, we cannot deny his existence. Actually, if he did so, right, well, what if this person in this house does not want him? What if this person did not desire him to be with him in the house? Okay, but it says instead what that he stands outside. He stands outside this door, and he is gently knocking. It is a gentle knock. It is a. It is not a pounding. It is not something that demands us to open. It is an invitation. And he's saying, "I am knocking on your door. If you hear my voice and you choose to open the door, then what? I will come in and I will dine with you. I will come in and I will have a relationship with you." This is what the Lord is calling us to do. He's calling us to hear his knocking, right? To hear his knocking. And that knocking is not as loud as we might imagine, okay? Another example of maybe the subtle way that God communicates with us, uh, Elijah the prophet, uh, he was fleeing for his life from Jezebel the queen, and he went uh, uh, to this uh, mountain. And, and this is in 1 Kings 19, okay? And the Lord said that he was going to speak to him. Okay, so he went there to the mountain to hear the voice of the Lord. So it says, um, then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And this still, small voice was the voice of God. So even though there was these big manifestations, these big cataclysmic things, this wind, this earthquake, this fire, all the things that would be very, very obvious that anyone could point to it and say, look, there's something happening. But God was not in any of those things. God was in the still, small voice. Okay? This is the way that God communicates with us. He communicates in the still, small voice. And always, in order for us to hear him, we must assent to do something. We must assent to, to do something. All the people that the Lord spoke to, 
He spoke to them because they were willing to listen and they were willing to do. Like I said, that faith is a movement toward God. When he goes to someone and calls them to be a prophet, it's because what he knows that this person will receive his words and that he will act on his words. But if I am a person who is so callous and hardened and I am not even willing to, to accept the possibility or to, to, to try to do what it is that God has asked, then I will never understand. In our mindset in the world, understanding comes first and then faith. Prove it to me, and once you show me enough evidence, then I will believe. But this is the opposite of the way that God operates. God says, have faith, try what I'm telling you, and then you will understand, and then you will be confirmed that the words that I'm saying are true. In Isaiah 29:16, uh, it says what? Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Here, here Isaiah is speaking about what? That you have things turned around. You, th you have things reversed. You, you, you can't study God in this way. The, the, the clay cannot question the existence of the potter in this way. The potter is the one making the, the clay. The, the, the potter is the one making the pottery. How is the potter, pottery going to then deny the existence of the very one who made him? This is why one of the evidence that we have in the existence of God, which we're going to talk about a little later, is the creation. The creation itself is a testament to the existence of God. Um, the idea that we can prove the existence of God is a fallacy because we don't require the existence of so many other things. Right? We, don't, we, we, we don't require proof of so many things. We accept it on faith. We accept in faith the fact that um, I, I'm, I'm going to get into my car and that I'm going to drive on the road and I trust and believe that the drivers and the cars around me are not you know, maniacs and they're not going to try to kill me while I'm driving. Okay? We accept by faith that when we go somewhere, someone isn't going to pull out a gun and shoot us, God forbid. We, we trust in faith so many things. So many things we trust by faith. We wouldn't be able to live in the world if we didn't have faith. And I'm not talking about religious faith. I'm talking just about any kind of faith. There is no proof or guarantee in this world for anything. And yet we have what we consider to be good enough. It's good enough for me. You know, it's good enough for me. Even though I don't have 100% proof, it's good enough for me. And yet when it comes to God, sometimes people ask for this 100% without a doubt proof about a God who is invisible, about a God who is spirit, about a God who is telling us that he was not going to force himself on us, but that we must accept him even by faith. So what is some of the evidence then? What is some of the evidence of the existence of God? The first is the existence of the universe, the existence of everything around us, right? So anything in the physical world that exists has a beginning, okay? There, there has to be a beginning to anything that exists has to have a beginning. And so everything that has a beginning has to have a cause. There has to be a reason why it came to be if it has a beginning. And so if something has a cause, there has to be something that, that made it. There has to be something that came before it that caused it to happen. So by definition, what we are calling to be God is you know, the, what they call the unmoved mover, which is the one who initiated everything, the one who was the beginning before everything began to be that by definition had nothing before it, right? This is what we are calling to be God. And so far there has been no explanation for how everything began. People can say, well, you know, there, there is something far, far in the past that happened. Okay, well, what happened before that thing? 
what caused that thing to happen? What caused, what was there before the universe came into being? You know, and, and, and no matter what answer people give, there's always going to be a question of well, what came before that and what came before that. And eventually you have this series of questions of what came before that until you get to a point where there can't have been anything else before it. So this is what we are speaking about when we speak about God. God's existence simply by looking around, right? Simply by looking at the universe around us and saying this could not have come from nothing. This could not have come on its own. This did not self-create itself. Right? Someone or something had to have created it. Is this a proof? This is not a proof, but it's evidence. It's something to make us think and to, to contemplate the possible existence of God. It is not a proof. Um, the second point is the existence of objective moral obligations. Okay, some people will argue that you do not need God for morality. Some people will say that you can do good um, simply uh, without the existence of God, simply for what is in the best interest of society. And when some Christians make the argument that in order for us to have a belief in what is truly good, uh, means that God must exist and he has placed in us that sense of morality, even people that do not believe in God, they will say no. Actually, the way, the reason that we, the way that we consider something to be moral is uh, what is best for society. Right? So the idea that what I do, I do it because I say what is best for myself or what is best for society. Okay? And that is what determines morality without a God. This is the argument. Okay? But then you can ask this question of what about something that's truly self-sacrificing, a person who truly sacrifices themselves and sacrifices themselves for someone who is not benefiting society. So let me just give you a, a kind of a contrived example. Let's say there was an elderly person, maybe someone who was even close to death, and they are um, about to get hit by a car. And a young person seeing this elderly person about to get hit by a car, runs and pushes them out of the way of the car um, and risking their own life, okay? This is not, how, how would we see such a person? How would we judge such a person? We would say that they are what? They are foolish? Or we would say that they're a hero? We would say that they're a hero, right? This is the kind of thing you would see on the news and somebody would say, oh, this person, look what they did, this great thing that they did. And we, 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 would, we would say this person's a hero for what they did because they, they were going to sacrifice themselves for the sake of another person. But if you look at it from the, the perspective of an atheist who says that morality comes only from what is best for society, there was nothing good for society that happened here, right? Because you are sacrificing someone who is young and has a lot of potential to benefit society for the sake of someone who is old and going to die very soon anyway. And sacrificing yourself, in this case, also wasn't good for society, okay? Because of the person you are saving. So if you look at it from the very, like, technical perspective, there was nothing good about this. So why is it that we feel that it is good? Why is it that we feel that self-sacrifice is a noble and honorable thing, a heroic thing, right? It doesn't make sense in the atheistic perspective. It doesn't make sense when you just look at it from the sake of what is best for society or what is best for the individual, okay? So this is evidence for an objective moral obligation. And if objective moral obligation is coming from somewhere, and it's not coming from us as human beings, it's not coming from us as a society, it's not coming from our laws, it's not coming from our philosophers, it's coming from somewhere else. Because it's common to all people, right? It's common to all people. People with all that kinds of different beliefs and backgrounds and cultures all share some common sense of morality that something is good and something is bad. 
You know, there is something that is good. We can say, is murder good or bad? Well, people will say, no, murder is bad. Well, the atheists will say, well, it's bad because it harms society. And if we had a, a society where murder was allowed, then it would be bad for society. That's their argument. But my counter argument is what I just gave that example. There are some things that are objectively good that are, it has nothing to do with society as a whole. It has nothing to do with if it's better for society. It has to do with that the idea of self-sacrifice is noble and honorable, and we all think that, even without an understanding as to why we believe that's the case. The idea that God put in us this sense of common morality, not because we believe in him, but because we were created in his image. And as human beings, all of us are created in his image, regardless of our religion, regardless of what we believe. The final point that I want to mention in this, and of course there's many, many more evidences for the existence of God, but the, the final point I want to mention here is the evidence of design, the evidence of design in the universe. Could everything that we see around us simply exist by randomness? Because this is what science is claiming. Everything around us originated just through random, purposeless processes. There is nothing, there was no purpose, there was no design, it was all random. The things that ended up coming to being came to be because of randomness, because of random mutations, not because there was anyone deciding that this should be. The entire universe, the complexities of nature, animals, plants, human beings, did the mutations that they speak about all result in these, you know, in, in, the, in the perseverance or the, the, the preserving of all of the positive things that we see in the world today, all, the, all the, the, the things that are working today, these complex systems. I always use this example when I question, for instance, this concept of purposeless, godless evolution, okay? The idea of evolution says that um, there are mutations that happen in a creature, and those mutations uh, are passed down to the next generation. And if those mutations result in something positive um, that will help this creature to survive, then that creature will survive and pass, out to pass down its DNA to the next uh, generation and so on. Think about something like sexual reproduction. How is it that sexual reproduction could evolve? How is it that you could have these organs that really have no purpose yet because sexual reproduction hasn't actually happened yet? These sexual organs that's, that start to be formed in one creature, which we'll call the male, and then a different set of sexual organs that happen to evolve in another creature, which we'll call the female, that also have no purpose yet. And at some point, at some point in time, these two sets of organs become compatible, and then they can actually be combined together to create an offspring. How is that ever going to happen by randomness? How is that ever going to happen through a sequence of gradual changes that is caused by mutations in DNA? Right? There are some things that cannot be done gradually. Yes, maybe there are some things that can, but there are some things that cannot. Just to say that every, everything that we see around us, even when it comes to life, has, has evolved or changed over time in this way, it's just, even from a, even from a, a non-religious perspective, there's a lot of questions as to whether this even makes any sense at all. So the evidence of design, there is design everywhere. If you look around in the entire universe, the universe is barren. The universe has nothing. And then when you look at the earth, how rich it is in life, how rich it is in, in so many things. Is it just random that it so happened to be that the earth is like this? So again, is this proof? This is not proof. It's evidence, right? Is it an, it's enough evidence for us to seriously consider the question of God. To say, is, maybe, maybe God really is here. Maybe there is a God. Maybe this could not have happened on its own. Let me explore it further. And when I explore it further, I shouldn't be, again, exploring, trying to find proof. 
because I will never find it. I should explore it by saying, if this God exists, this God that we read about in the Bible, if he exists, what is he asking me to do in order to know him, in order to see him, in order to experience him? Let me try that. Let me try what he says. And either I will find that, no, it didn't work, I didn't find what I was looking for, or I will find that I do see him. Discover God on his own terms, not on your own terms. Finally, in Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. This is the evidence. The heavens declare the glory of God. When we look up at the sky, this itself tells us about God. Even without any Bible, even without any preaching, even just looking at the glory of nature, looking at the heavens, looking at the firmament, the sky, day-to-day -day utter speech. It's like, it's like the universe is talking to us and telling us God exists. God created me. It is too complex. It is too wonderful for it to have happened any other way. So may God grant us this reasonable faith, faith, this rational faith, to know God through reason and through faith together, just as it says what um, in, in Hebrews 4.2, when he says those people, they did not, uh, the words did not profit them because it was not mixed with faith in those who heard it. May God grant us that we would be mixed with faith, that we would have faith in ourselves to perceive the words of God and the wisdom in them and to accept them on faith and not expecting proof 100% and glory be to God forever. Amen.